Today's episode is sponsored by Discovered Magazine. Discovered is an international print counterculture magazine encompassing the best of music, art, skateboarding, and anything with a punk ethos. Listeners get 10% off a yearly subscription using the code FIRSTEVER, spelled out, when you visit store.dscvrd.co. Welcome to the first ever podcast. I am your host, Jeremy Bohm. If this is your first time here, this is a show where I interview artists of all kinds about the first experiences in their art form that led them to where they are today. I, uh, it might sound a little funky. It might sound a little reverby. There might be some hum in the background. I am currently in Redding, California. We're on the final week of the tour I've been on. Um, we play Berkeley tomorrow. So when you hear this, I will be playing Berkeley. And uh, yeah, it's almost over, but um, I'm, in a, I'm at a hotel and the, the person behind the counter was nice enough to let me use the empty dining hall, um, but it has like, you know, like a large refrigerator going and, I, and like the juice machine and I'm just trying to paint, a, paint you a picture of, of uh, where I'm at. Also, my voice sounds a little rougher than usual because uh, it's, it's, I've been on tour for five weeks. Leave me alone. Um, my guest today is Dan Ozzy. He has a brand new book that came out yesterday, and that's extremely exciting. It's called Sellout. The full title is Sellout, the major label feeding frenzy that swept punk, emo, and hardcore, 1994 to 2007. Uh, I met Dan as he was a staff writer at Noisy and uh, was always very kind and, and covered bands uh, that I've affiliated with or, have, or play in. And we've always gotten along. I, I've always really liked him. He's currently my neighbor now in Los Angeles. Um, he's also known for co-writing the book Tranny with uh, Laura Jane Grace, um, which had a lot of love, uh, rightfully so. So this is his uh, his debut as a uh, as a as a solo writer. This book sellout. Um, it's great. I, I can't recommend it enough, especially if you are a fan of punk, hardcore, emo, all that sort of stuff. And if uh, you know, the story of, uh, of these bands that, uh, he covers, like, uh, he covers Thursday, My Chemical Romance, he covers Green Day, Jawbreaker, all these different bands get different chapters in the book. We get into all this stuff, but, um, if, if that sort of stuff interests you, you should definitely pick up this book. Um, but before we get there, let's talk about my friends over at Rootless Coffee. Rootless Coffee Company is a small batch roaster out of Flint, Michigan, making high-end coffee with bags designed by some of the comic industry's rising stars, collaborating with artists, bands, brands, nonprofits, wrestlers, comedians, and more. Rootless is the punk rock gateway to craft coffee. Easy to understand and delicious roast options. Listeners get 20% off using the code HARDTIMES at checkout when they visit rootlesscoffee.com. Any size, any grind, any time. Break free from boring. <clears throat> All right, what else we got? 
now that we've talked about my friends at Ruleless, um, I have a Patreon. I'm always, I'm always, I'm always talking about the Patreon. Um, you get bonus episodes, and currently for today, subscribers were able to submit questions to Dan Ozzy on the on the uh, page there, and I uh, read those questions to Dan, and he was nice enough to answer them. So currently, there is a bonus episode where you can, uh, if you subscribe, you could check that out. Um, now that I'm about to be home in about a week or so, I'll start uh, interviewing more people. I'm, I'm still uh, I'm still ahead of schedule. Got a couple more in the coming weeks that I'm very excited about. Um, but then I'm going to be right back to interviewing, and uh, and I'll be posting about upcoming guests so people can submit questions. Okay, all right. Here's my conversation with my friend Dan Ozzy. Uh, Dan Ozzy, my friend, my neighbor, how are you? Well, I'm doing well. Thanks for asking. Yeah. How's, uh, you know, you've been in California now for what? How long? Well over a year. Two years. I moved on April 20th, 420, Hitler's birthday, (laughs) (laughs) 2019. Um, when I was, it's funny when I was like, you know, clicking around, trying to think of things I want to talk to you about or whatever. I, uh. I went to your website and on your bio, it says mm. Los Angeles based writer. Yeah. How, how long did it take for you to make, to, to update your bio like that? Oh, I was so resistant. I was so resistant. <laughs> and the only reason I put it in there is because I feel like if somebody, like if an editor were looking to hire somebody to cover something, they would know where I was immediately and okay. they could just move on if I, if it was somewhere I was, you know, in New York or something like that. Um, so yeah, it took it took a minute. <laughs> as a as a lifelong as a native New Yorker, it took a minute. Yeah. So you're uh I know we've obviously we've talked about certain stuff uh about your past in the before, but you're from My original, murky past, yes. Murky past, but you're from Staten Island originally, mm-hmm. right? That's 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 home. Shaolin. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> um and uh, you know, it's, I, I interview a lot of musicians, and because you're a music writer, I feel like there are some, there's a lot of parallels, even though you know, as far as I know, you never did a band, right? I think you told me that before. Incorrect. I you did. did do a band. <laughs> yeah, you I told did. you that I was in a grind band, right? In high school, I don't think you did. Yeah. Did you keep terrible. the secret? No, I feel like I would have been pretty open about that. Terrible, terrible band. But what was it called? Not saying. Oh, come on, come <laughs> I doubt on. you could even look it up. Yeah, you probably can't. Come on, it's, because we it's it was called War of August, and we were okay. just an obnoxious grind band of teenagers trying to sound like Drop Dead, basically. That's cool. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, it could be much, much worse. Um, yeah. Did Did you put out any records? No, we didn't. We like recorded a demo or something like that, but we we never got around to recording. And how long was this band together? Jeez, probably like senior year of high school, I would say. Okay. And, that, and then the dissolution of high school probably took care of that. <laughs> did uh did you play many shows? We played a we played a few around um New York, New Jersey. I think that was it. I think just New York and New Jersey. Okay. Did you yeah. have any shows that were like, oh shit, I can't believe we're playing this show? Or was it all um, like local shows? You know, we so our guitar our singer was brothers with um the guitarist of this band that was kind of popular in that scene on Staten Island, uh the cable car theory. Oh, I remember them. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. And so like 
they would throw us some bones on shows. Like they'd be like, Hey, our little brother band, literally our little brother band is, can you put them on the bill too? So then sometimes we get locked onto these shows and um, we played actually, you might be interested to know this. Do you remember on the backside of the Converge DVD, there is an entire performance where they played in Sean uh, from most, most precious bloods, tiny basement. Yeah. And they do the um, thing where they all play a different song at the same exactly, time. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> so we didn't play that show. I did go to that show. You can see me on the DVD, nice. um, but we did play in that basement with, uh, I believe Neil Perry and it must've been also cable car theory. I don't remember. All I remember was that <laughs> all I remember is that we played the whole, I was having like audio difficulties. I'm like, man, I'm having a hard time getting my bass going. And, and then people were standing around waiting for us to play. So it's like, all right, well, let's just play. And then I realized after that, my, my bass wasn't even working the whole time. The entire <laughs> like, time. Yeah. The cable was all fucked. Like I figured out later that the cable I was using that was, was totally fucked. Uh, so like, yeah, we just played this whole show. Like that's how bad we were that like one of the members was completely dead silent the whole time. And nobody even like noticed, you know, it somehow like probably improved the sound quality. So I was going to ask, because you, you had just, you know, you mentioned like, oh, the singer of the band. And I was like, wait, so what did you play? I figured you for a singer. I played bass. Yeah. Yeah. What, how, uh, how can you, if, if I was to uh, walk down the street to your place and hand you a bass and say, Dan, play me some bass. I can play Fugazi's waiting room every year. I give myself (laughs) a physical uh, to make sure that I am still like present in body, mind and soul. And I have to do three things. I have to land a kickflip. I have to play Fugazi's waiting room on bass and I have to uh, sing the first verse of Jay-Z's big pimpin. You know, why I thug them, fuck them, love them, leave them, but I don't fuck every year. I do that just to make sure I'm not slipping. Uh, so, wow. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, wow. I'll come over one day and play uh waiting room. I can That's still do incredible. it. I haven't played bass in a long time though. Yeah. After that. And so before that band and after that band, that was it. You were like, Never that, played, never ne- could never pick up the instrument again. <laughs> did you have a, was there like a soul crushing moment or was it just like, I, mean, I don't think a, this is going to go anywhere? No, it was like a lot of soul crushing. What, what's funny was we did kind of like, I feel like if we had stuck with it or like improved even just slightly, we actually could have been better because we had a lot of people in our corner. We had like the cable car theory. There was this other band called um, the Scarlet Letter who would also like help us out and take us on shows and stuff like that. And so, and I remember too, like that kind of music is so shitty that it's like my friend, Chris Norris, Stake Mountain once described it. It's like photography. Anybody can do it, but does that doesn't mean everybody should do it you know it's the photography of of music basically so but i do feel like if we had like maybe tried we could have and i'm not saying we could have taken the world by storm but we could have like been in like at at best like the orchid circuit like you know that that ebullition style of like because that's what we wanted to do we wanted to make like level plane type records we were so into like neil perry and Seisha and and all that stuff. And that's what we wanted to do. And I remember we did a show one time in Jersey and somebody billed us on the flyer as Staten Island's answer to Charles Bronson. And I was just like, whoa, Whoa. like, 
damn, maybe we are good. Meanwhile, like Charles Bronson, love him to death. Probably the least technically good band of, of all time, you know, especially like that early stuff. So maybe yeah. we sounded like early Ch- Charles Bronson before they like, you know, like the demo Charles Bronson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Anything pre the Youth Attack 10 inch. Um, yeah. Man, that's that's super funny. Yeah, we've never talked about that, huh? Yeah, no. And yeah, cable car theory. I mean, it's like, yeah, how hard, you know, no slander at the label, but like how hard could it have been to like put out something on Immigrant Son? You know? Yeah, oh, yeah. Immigrant Son was the big, like Kevin Devine was on that. And yep. um, that's how I heard been... cable car theory, right? They were on yeah, that. Yeah, they were yeah. on that sampler. Um, yeah, that was, a, that was a big local one for us. You're right. If we had like gotten our shit together and like done something, um, like if maybe we had another year or so, we could have improved just slightly enough to be one of those bands. Yeah. Um, but like, it, it's hard to like band members in high school, you know? Sure. Um, so yeah, you know, obviously the show is all about first experiences and stuff. So, uh, what I was going to say is, you know, with musicians, a lot, uh, a lot of the first thing I ask is like, what was the first time you connected with music? And since you've written so much about music, I'm curious for you when you were young, what the first thing that you connected with musically was. Uh, I mean, you know, it is uh, <laughs> not the most politically correct thing to say, but it is life is what it is. It was fucking Michael Jackson's bad. Dude, you, you're this is this is a very common thing, especially yeah. people in our age group. I mean, between uh, I just know, interviewed Dustin from Thrice yesterday. That was mm-hmm. Anthony Green said that I've it certainly was for me too. Did you did you did you have the jacket that you uh, tried to no, make? No, like but his? I had the I had the fingerless gloves. Like you know, I was <laughs> so into him, and it it's funny because I was thinking about it, and um, Bad came out when I think I was five or six, and um, it was the first album that like I really loved, and I can't really explain this, but when you're a kid, um, you think that like the whole world is new to you and you don't really understand that things are new to other people too. Um, like I, for some reason, when I heard that album, I took it as though like everybody in the world already knew about this cause it existed time eternal. I didn't understand that. Like it had just come out. Does that make sense? Like I, you know, like time is just different to a five-year-old. Like I thought like, I was like, wow, I just discovered this new thing. I didn't realize it was like the current hottest album to everybody. Like I didn't realize everybody was getting into it at once. I thought it was just me. Um, right. But yeah, that that's the first album for sure. Yeah, no, I, I, I feel that. I was trying to think of parallels as to like what attracted me to it too, where like, did you... <laughs> And this is a fun one. Did you ever watch Ernest Goes to Camp as a kid? Or did you like the Ernest movies? <laughs> I didn't really get into the Ernest movies. No, sorry. <laughs> oh, I swear there's a there's a there's a line here, but there was a there was one of the kids in it that was uh, he had a name like something super generic like Spike or something like that. But he was like the kid who wore the denim vest and kind of looked like he would have been in the background of that bad video, you know, like just looked punk, looked super cool or whatever. And I think just anything that looked like like you'd be like a bad kid was was just appealing. I think that's what appealed to a lot of mm-hmm. us. You know, it's mm-hmm. like it it looked dangerous by some by some degree. I mean, they, he literally had an album called Dangerous. So all of these things <laughs> are lining up. All of these things are lining up. Um, did you? Uh, what was your first concert? So this is where I sound like I'm uh, making it up for cred, and I swear it's it's really not true. Like I I don't. Remember going to any like everybody's just like yeah my mom took me to see Madonna when I was like eight or whatever but I I really don't think that I had 
an experience like that. Like, I think I just started going to DIY shows. Like I just Mm. went right into that. And I know that that sounds like I'm trying to like earn scene points or something, but it's true. Like, I really don't remember being taken to any like proper concerts. Uh, I just went right into that. (laughs) Well, what was, do you remember what your first, like, I guess like local punk show was? Yeah. Okay. So I'm, I knew this was, would come up and I'm so excited to talk about it because Staten Island, I feel like, you know, it, it probably is the butt of jokes. But one thing that it, Staten Island does have is um, a it is centrally located geographically. And so you can get to Jersey easily. You can get to Manhattan easily. You can get to Philly and even Boston and upstate easily. So um, when I first got into high school, um, I found out about this place on the North shore of Staten Island called the joint. It was just this little hole in the wall hall, um, on a corner of a shitty, scary block. And this guy freedom ran it. And every Friday, every Friday night, they had like $5 shows. And, you know, if you look back through the flyers, I'm sure like bands like avail and stuff have come through there, but it was a lot of times it was like a mix of some Staten Island bands and like maybe a Philly Jersey band. And then also there was a scene up in New Paltz. Um, and it uh, there was two bands specifically, iRobot and Devola. And they used to come down sometimes too. So every Friday night, you could sort of see like this mix of semi-local and maybe a touring band or something like that. And so um, in, in freshman year, I started going to that and I caught the tail end of it. The place kind of like closed Um shortly after I started getting into it, but it had been around for a while and I caught the the clip of it. And, um, you know, it was just, it was just, uh, no stage. You can, you can, somebody just uploaded a bunch of shows from this place, the joint, and you can see botch playing there, like botch doing this amazing show. Um, yeah. I'm trying to think of who else, but like, um, but yeah, so that was just like how I got introduced to the idea of like, um, music not being above me um you know it was just on level ground people were selling cassettes that they had made and patches and like just diy culture and just like like the whole time you're just like where is the adult and then you realize like there is none like people are just running this like it's just running them this themselves and there's this great line um chris gethard the comedian had a book called lose well And he talks about sort of the same thing in Jersey, like going to a DIY show and like looking at the merch table and looking at the cassettes and like saying to the guy, the kid, like behind the merch table, like, who let you do this? (laughs) And I think that's such a great line because you're just like, yeah, like you don't get that music is accessible. You know, you think of it as like things you buy at the mall or whatever, but like to see a cassette that somebody made. I love that response. Who let you do this? And so like, I did never vocalize it, but I had a very similar reaction where I'm like, where did you get this stuff from? Like yeah. these t-shirts and these patches and stuff like stickers, like people just, will just make them for you. If you send the money, like that's fucking crazy. Um, so yeah, I really just started going to that place, the joint. Um, and that was kind of where I saw a lot of my first uh, shows. Oh, that's awesome. It's man mentioning iRobot too. I know they have a, Split seven inch with cable car three. And no, right. In, in, when was the last time cable car three got this much shout out? <laughs> and you got to understand too, for me, like back then, like, yeah, obviously, like we knew that bands were bigger, but them, it was just like, 
they were like in Staten Island, they were fucking huge, like them and Murdoch, that band Murdoch. Um, it was just, you know, sort of like scene celebrities at the yeah. time. And it was, again, just so weird because it was my friend's brother. Like I used to go to his house and it's just like, oh, dude, that's the guy from the cable car theater. You know, it was crazy. Yeah. Well, let me ask you this because, you know, living in me, living in L.A., <clears throat> I've always, you know, I don't. I wasn't present for a lot of that stuff. You got to be right in the center of it with all those bands and that whole scene and everything like that. Um, and being in LA, it's like growing up here, like shows rarely were actually ever in LA. You always had to go to Orange County for like, you know, Chain Reaction or Shea Cafe or, or this place, Q's Cafe. Like there's all these different places, but not really LA Central. Um, being in Staten Island and how you mentioned how uh, it was geographically located. Um, did you at the time realize how special that was knowing that like, Oh, you could go catch a show on Long Island or go down to Jersey or if anything, go down to Philly, like, uh, or up to Boston, if it, if it meant it, like, did you realize how cool that was knowing how close all these things were or something Not that really at the time you kind of take it for granted. And also too, like you get so bogged down with how shitty Staten Island is otherwise that like that you think you live in a shit place. Um, so no, like I, sh I should have more and I didn't really ever think of like how some kid in like, you know, Royal rural Iowa would have had less ex access to stuff like this. I kind of like took it for granted, but yeah, in high school, I went to like ABC, no Rio all the time, CBGB knitting factory, like all these landmark places, a lot of which are not even around anymore. And I was just like. Yeah, I don't know. I just want to see the band that I like. I, it doesn't, you know. Were you uh, were you a good high school student? Because I was going to say, that's a lot of uh, things to be excited about once you get out of school. You know what I'm saying? Like, sounds yeah. like there's a lot of shows you'd be going to after school. I, I was. I was. I School was always, like, pretty easy for me. Um, in some regards, actually, I should qualify. Like, I was really always good at language and English. Go figure. Um, but like math and science, I fucking sucked at. And, um, you know, I remember getting into college and they like make you continue to take a required math class and bio class. And I'm like, why am I fucking taking this? <laughs> like, right. you know, it just like, how is this useful to me? And I remember in math, just like, just being like, just give me the fucking C or whatever. And let me get, I'm never coming back to math. Just give me the fucking grade. It was like the worst grade I'd ever gotten in college. It was like a C and I was like, great. Thanks. Bye. Like <laughs> I'm going to go back to my, like, you know, creative writing class, which might actually pay off in the future. That was honestly, I never went to college, but, uh, uh you know, if I was to list excuses as to why I didn't go, uh, one of them was like, yeah, like having to take the, the general education stuff where I was like, I know if I take a math placement test, I'm going to be so bad. Like I'm, I'm going to be placed so low that I won't even be able to earn credits for it. You know, like I, I'm with you. Math and science were always so, so bad for me. So yeah, it's, yeah, I don't, I don't envy that, that struggle of having to go through those again when you didn't even want, it's like you're having to pay, you're having to pay to go to college and take the shit that you don't even want to take. Where did you go to college? Uh, Wagner, which is on Staten Island. And uh, so, yeah. Did you do all four years? Graduate? Yeah. Yep. Mm -hmm. And what did you, did you graduate with, uh, with like creative writing or what? Well, you know, man, like that's one of the things I don't like try to live with a lot of regrets, but like one thing that I wish I definitely could do over again was like figure out what I want to do earlier so I can like, uh, get on a better track. But like in high school, like who the fuck knows what they want to do. And so like, yeah. 
I went, my college like did not offer journalism as a minor, as a major. I minored in it. I majored in English and minored in journalism. And I had a minor in art as well. And, um, you know, in, if I could do it again, I might've gone somewhere where I could more closely focus on the journalism part of it. You know, English was kind of a, a waste. <laughs> um, so yeah, I don't really, this sounds like arrogant, but I don't think I got like a whole lot out of my college years as far as like setting me up for the future. Sure. Like, you know, a lot of people when they, when they take English, I think in the back of their brain, they're always like, well, I could always become a teacher. Was that ever anything you wanted to do? Uh, or like mm, even maybe like as a fallback? I didn't know what the fuck I was going to do. I don't think so. So at what, so if, you know, you, you graduated college with those, uh, with English and, and creative writing and a, and a minor in, in a journalism. So taking, having a minor in journalism, was that something that you felt like you were going to pursue? Yeah, for sure. In the last year of college, I worked at the local newspaper, the Staten Island Advance. Um, which was really good experience because they just like throw you into the fire. And I got to do a lot of cool stuff for like a 21 year old, you know? And uh, also too, it was great because I've, I feel like I've been lucky in that I've accomplished more than I ever thought possible in my career. And yet my mom has never been as proud as me, a proud <laughs> of me as when I worked at the Staten Island Advance because that paper got delivered to her house. Like right. her friends would be like, I saw Dan on the cover of this, you know, like, uh, and so like that gave her the most bragging rights of any thing that I've ever done. I, I, I like <laughs> when Laura and I had our book event in New York, we had 500 people there. I like roped off seats for my parents. They were the only reserved seats in the whole house. And then like midway through, they were just like, okay, we're going to take off, you know, <laughs> and I'm just, but they have like my Staten Island advanced stuff, like framed <laughs> so, what, what, it's, like, uh, in a book at my parents' house. It's so funny. What were you doing for the newspaper? Was it, were you pitching things you wanted to write about? Or did you have like a column about like, sh about shows? Like, what were you doing? No, well, it's, oh man, you're reminding me of something. It, it was really like an open slate. Like if you were a hustler, it was a really good place. And it, I was like, I, when I, if I got my foot in the door, I was like going to work outwork everybody else. Like that was my whole thing. It still is, you know? Um, but you had to do a lot of the shit that like the real staff reporters like didn't have time for, or like couldn't get to, um, everybody on staff had, had to write obituaries. And so I probably every day that I was there probably did three obituaries, two obituaries, wow. and you just got to learn to like bang them out. And it's fucking depressing because Basically, you get a form and, um, you know, it's it's just not rewriting the wheel. It's just getting the person, the deceased. You talk to the family and you get the deceased, like first name, last name, maiden name, what their job was. Um, and then like how many kids they had, what they like to do. And then you just take it all and you just be like, Harry Smith died at age 82 this weekend. He uh, for 40 years, he worked as a sanitation department, blah, blah, blah. And it's so formulaic. And it just sucks because it's somebody's fucking loved one, you know, you're like, you're talking to somebody and they're crying to you on the phone and you're just like, Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. I'm so sorry to hear about Harry. That's so bad. Anyways, let, let me ask you these questions. It's just so it, it felt like I was invading people's privacy. I totally. didn't like it, you know? And, um, uh, but yeah, you got to write obituaries, right? Um, so there here's, was that, yeah. Here's something I didn't know. I don't, I, I actually don't know about obituaries is, is it something that 
you have to do, or is it something that the family requests be in the paper? That's a good question. I think that when somebody is brought into a funeral home and they have the, um, you know, the, the wake for them. Sure. Um, I think then the funeral home maybe gives the paper, like the deaths and the contacts. And then I call the person and I'm like, hi, hello. I'm from the Staten Island advance. I'm like calling for the obituary of Harry Smith. I'm so sorry to hear about your loss. Um, and so I think that was how it worked. I could be wrong. Was that for you kind of like a lesson in compassion that you never had to really like, not to say you weren't a compassionate person or anything like that, but like, that's an, unco- I mean, it's an uncomfortable thing to have, to, especially like a younger person to have to like yeah. cold call strangers and talk about something so personal. And I, and in a way I was going to ask if that maybe um, built a little bit of maybe not confidence, but um, uh, it, it made you a little more comfortable asking some harder questions during it. For sure. Yeah. I mean, like, um, yeah. And, and it almost makes, can go too far and make you callous. You know, you're just mm. like, oh, another fucking obituary. I got to go talk about this old broad who croaked, you know? Yeah. Um, and I, and, and sometimes you would get like that because, you know, I don't want to generalize, but like a lot of older people who would die, you know, they would be like in their 80s, and their hobbies include playing with their grandkids and going to Atlantic City, <laughs> playing with their grandkids and going to Atlantic City. And you just write a lot of those and you just like kind of just like you've seen it all. But then every once in a while, man, you get like some fucking 13 year old kid who was a make a wish kid because he had this like brain cancer. And you're like, fuck, man. And you just go home. You know, I remember going home like really sometimes affected by that. But then in a weird way, you see it the next day and it's uh, I'm thinking of this one kid in particular, which is crazy because it stayed with me for like yeah. this long. But this one kid, he was like a he had like terminal brain cancer and he was a big uh, New York Rangers fan, you know, and I he had like a make a wish thing where he like went to Madison Square Garden and like hung out on the ice. And, you know, I like wrote this thing about him and then the next morning you know you get the newspaper and there's his picture with his fucking rangers jacket on and and i wrote about him and in a way i was just like you know it's kind of cool that i got to like honor this person totally um you know because like death is inevitable but like the least you can do is just like capture their life adequately you know right yeah no Uh, that's oh man and how and it's kind of interesting that they had everybody kind of tackle those. Yeah. And, and, you know, like everybody was responsible for it. Like, even if you were like a, even like they had like a uh, people with beats, like the education reporter or like the, um, the police pr- reporter or whatever. But like, if a, if an obituary came in and you were the person at the desk, like you had to take it. And so that was like me being low man on the totem pole. A lot of times it was like, Oh, well, Dan's here, Dan, Dan can take it, you know? So I did have to do a lot of those, but back to your original question, if you were like gutsy enough, yeah, you could go up to the entertainment report editor, which I did. And I was like, hey, I have an like idea or like, I just like to cover stuff. Can you send me to something? And I remember this guy, I think his name was Todd. He did me, he was the entertainment editor and he did me two solids. One, he was like, yeah, there's a movie tonight. You want to go review it? And I was like, fuck yeah. And you know what it was? It was that Vin Diesel movie, The Pacifier. <laughs> and I was just like, yeah, I'll, I'll go do that. And I got to like write it as if I was fucking like Gene Siskel. I was like, oh, you know, like up until late in the night, just reviewing The Pacifier. Um, so I did that. And then also too, like 
I was just like, you know, I'm really into music. Can I write about music? And he was just like, yeah, like, what do you want to write about? And at that time, you know, I had been requesting records from record labels because I was like blog, you know, I was doing like online reviewing. I was doing like okay. zines on my own, like my own thing. Yeah. But he let me review a, I found it the other day. He let me review a Locust CD, um, like the Epitaph one that had like sure. the, um, I know which one you're talking uh, anyway, uh, the, Yeah. Not, not anyways, a Locust yeah. record. And I think of Montreal record. And like they were just in the, like there was a, I got a locust CD reviewed in the Staten Island newspaper like that's fuck it was crazy to me I don't know if anybody gave a shit um, like plague soundscapes that was gonna kill me I th- yeah yeah they're like yeah. beige one the brown one oh no that's uh that's new erections that was the the second oh, one but yeah yeah I in, think it was that one I think it was yeah, that 2007 one. that makes sense right. No. Well, anyways, I reviewed a Locust record, um, but I was just like, are you kidding? Like, that's so crazy. Like, that's been my entire life. Just like trying to rep these things I like in the places they don't belong because I believe in them, you know? Yeah. I mean, one of the things uh, I interviewed a cartoonist um, who does cartoon for uh, for The New Yorker, just does cartoons for The New Yorker. And, and one of the things I, uh, I had asked them was about um, pitching you know, like the first experience pitching stories and stuff like that. Like, um, it's, it sounds like you, you were pretty ready to kind of jump right in and kind of like push the things that you were excited about. Um, was that ever like a nerve wracking thing for you? Um, pitching? Yeah. Like when I was at, at, at the advance. Yeah, sure. I mean like your first time really ever doing that. No, I mean like I didn't feel too nervous about it because like, at, at the advance, it was kind of, I, I took it for granted, but like, you know, when you do send pitches, you're sending like blind emails and it's demeaning and stuff. But I was just like literally going up to the guy's desk and be like, Hey, my name is Dan. I want to write stuff for entertainment. And like, yeah. he was just like, okay. You know, like, yeah, yeah I, I think yeah. that's the hardest part is just like, you're sometimes just a faceless person, just emailing somebody. Um, but just to like go up, you know, like I want to do this and they'd be like, okay. Um, you had mentioned, uh, that you, you had been doing zines and stuff like that. Like, when did you start doing zines? Uh, in high school. Okay. Um, were they like interviews? Were they photos? What were they? Uh, a lot of it was just like ranting. (laughs) (laughs) Surprise, surprise. Right. Um, a lot of it was just like ranting, um, about things I didn't like and record reviews reviews. I was like really into, I feel like just um, there were more capsule reviews at that time that you could find in like magazines and stuff. And I feel like that has largely gone away, but I was like really into that because, because also too, it meant that you got free CDs. Totally. Um, And now I think that that's probably been taken away, but uh, (laughs) for that reason, I was just like a quest. It was a quest to like get, free cds you know and you feel yeah. like you're getting away with something or something like that yeah man what a what a drag we live in now to where i'm sure if you work at a record store the 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 distros probably just send you like you know soundcloud links or something yeah, like for that for sure to check out. like what a drag i man. mean cds were like a currency at that time i yeah. felt like rich when i got i i so this is in my zine that i i'm still making zines but i wrote a zine called where it all went wrong about like kind of my life and um, I wrote about how I, I never forgot it. I never forgot it. Um, I would write to record labels and be like, Hey, I'm a college student. Like I have a radio show and I make fanzines and I have like a website and I review albums sometimes for like, I, I, I reviewed records for this art magazine called beautiful decay. 
And the reason I found that is because one issue, they it was called the punk issue, and they just had the cover of Jane Doe on the cover, like mm. huge. And I was just like, cool, I want to write for them. But anyway, so I started like writing to these record labels and explaining who I was and basically like, please, can I have CDs? Yeah. And some of them would write back to me and I'll, I'll never forget, like I got one from Polyvinyl Records and I remember what was in it. It was a package and it had Of Montreal's Satanic Panic in the Attic, Mates of State, Team Boo, Rainer Maria, Anyone in Love With You Already Knows, and Volcano I'm Still Excited, which was Mark Duplass's band. Right. Um, before he was Mark Duplass. Yeah. And I just was just like, this is crazy. Like this, you know, like I'm like, I fucking scammed everybody, <laughs> even though like <laughs> I was working on it. I'm like, I pulled it off. I got free CDs, you know? Yeah. I mean, work. I worked, you know, I was working at a record store and I was the buyer for like punk and hardcore and emo and all that sort of stuff. So for me, I was, it was the best because all week I would just be getting packages from distros or for the labels because they want me to buy their CDs for the stock. Mm-hmm. But like, it's like, hey, I'm getting now free CDs. And then on top of that, the CDs that I did not like were going straight to Amoeba. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. Store credit, baby. You're just like, don't don't notice that little punch hole in the UPC code, please. Yeah, it's, the, it's, the <laughs> it's the loophole, man. <laughs> it's the uh, records are allowed to sell promo CDs. You know, yeah. it's like it, as long as you sell them for used. So yeah, I mean, it was. I'm with you, man. Shit was currency. Um, so when did when did you end up making the move over to? Uh, to noisy like was there other things in between there like that you were a staff writer at well um this is kind of gets long-winded but after i left um like that job at the newspaper it was just really fucking hard at that time to get a job i mean it's still hard now but like this was 2005 when like magazines were closing newspapers were like cutting their sections in half. It was just the end of print and it was hard. I had no real experience except for this like newspaper, which I feel like any Manhattan place probably looked down at like, Oh, you worked at the Staten Island paper, you know? Um, So yeah, I just felt like I wasn't going to make it. I was just trying to get any job. And then I fell into book publishing and I did that for many years. I did it for like eight years, actually. And I worked at like Penguin, Random House. Those are the same company now, which is very funny to me. Um, but I just jumped around. I worked at a bunch of places for eight years. And then I sort of had this like breakdown where I was just like, I sh- I hate myself for not pursuing writing. Like This is like now or never. I want to do this. And I just... W- the last place I was at was Penguin. And I it wasn't a good fit. And um, I quit. I just fucking quit. And I had never quit and not have another job lined up. Um, and I was, and I remember them being like, okay, you're quitting. Like, where are you going? I'm like, I'm not going anywhere. And they're like, well, what are you going to do? And I was just like, I don't know. <laughs> and I just like thought like, okay, I'm going to lose money for a while, but maybe if I can get writing, you know, if I can make some money off of freelance writing, this would be so sweet. And I started making a little, but I was definitely like losing money. Um, I was lucky in that I had a reserve of money because I was working these jobs and I didn't have much of a life. I was just kind of like banked money. Um, And I was just pursuing it for a while. And then the noisy thing, I just caught a lucky break because I reviewed... I got commissioned to write an article for a website called AOL Spinner, which is just like one of those, you know, there were a lot more music websites at that time. And that was one of them. And I I got commissioned to write something for them. And I feel like I got commissioned to write it on a Wednesday. And then on that Friday, it got announced. It's just like, yeah, this is not a website anymore where oh. AOL Spinner is dead, you know? 
Uh, so I was like, shit, but I got a kill fee for it. And then also I was free to pitch it elsewhere. And I remember, um, this woman, Sasha Hecht, she was at noisy at the time. And she just put something up on Twitter that said something like, Oh, really sucks about AOL spinner. Like if any of their writers need a home for their stuff, like feel free to pitch me. And she just put her email address. So I emailed her and I just was like, Hey, I have this piece you know, got killed. And I think they ran that maybe. And then she ran something else by me and it did well. And I want to say at that time, I was like pretty aggressive in my writing. Like I was still like, fuck this, fuck this. I'm right. You know, like I'm going to take shots at things. And so I was writing. Wait, 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 that's changed. I mean, I think I've calmed down considerably (laughs) because at that time I was just like, I think one of the things that I had written for them was like a eulogy for epitaph because at that time, this was like just before they had their like breakout where we're like, we're going to sign converge and all and like propaganda. It was like, they were still coming out of this. Like it's the end of, I don't know. It was a transitional time for them. And I like kind of took them to task for having all these fucking disgusting metalcore creeps on their label and et cetera. Um, But the stuff that I was writing like did well because it was like very cutthroat and it was like getting attention and, and then this guy, Ben, was like, hey, man, like, uh, we should have a drink or something. And we had, like, we went out and he was just like, yeah, like, we like what you're doing. Like, why don't you come here two days a week? Come into the office. You can write what you want and we'll pay you per th- for the day. And I was like, cool. And I did. And it's so funny because I, when I came in and I met, there were like three people at Noisy at that time. And one, it was Ben and Sasha. And Sasha was like, 20, like, or I think she was 21, but I think she started at Noisy when she was like, 19 like she dropped out of college to do one thing about vice they didn't give a fuck what your resume looked like it was just like oh you can write yeah go start tomorrow um i never showed them a resume or anything you know wow yeah and um so yeah so i was do- i was working there two days a week and again like if i get my foot in the door i work my ass off like i was just working so hard like i wanted to- i put everything i had into just like those two days and then then ben was like hey man you're doing really well why don't you come in three days a week and I was like, okay. And then eventually he was just like, why don't you just work here? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, okay, cool. Yeah. Um, so I just, st- that's how I like just weaseled my way into a staff job, you know? Totally. By the time you ended up leaving, what what actually was your position there? Were you, I forget, were you like a edit, like a, one of the you know what? main they editors? Like, or? When I started at least, because it was like, so, you know, everybody basically did the same thing. We were blogging. So when I got there, they were just like, what do you want your title to be? (laughs) And I was like, staff writer. I don't know. And they were like, great. And now they have like more of a hierarchy. But when I got there, I was just like staff writer. And um, so when I left, I was probably still staff writer because I didn't give a shit what the title was. But um, when I was leaving towards the end, they did sort of like hint that I should put my hat in to be the editor in chief. Okay. But I was like, I'm not doing that. <laughs> you know? Sure. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I so, want to backtrack a little bit, though, and ask, when you were working at um, the publishing houses, uh, what what actually was your position there? I was doing publicity there, um, which has been an invaluable um, skill set for me to have now that I promote my own books. like that, And it's such a dream come true, man, because like when I was working at those places, it was always like, yeah, this is, this is a fine job, whatever. But like, 
fuck, man, I hate working on other people's books. Like I wish I was working on my book, you know? Yeah. It's just a dream. It was like a fantasy. And then it like weirdly over the last few years has become a reality. And now I'm like in the mindset where I'm like working on promoting my book and I'm pretty good at it because like I know the timeframes and I know like how you know, things work and I know lead times and I, you know, I just like know how the NPR shows work. So yeah, it's, that it's was, been a good skill set to have. Yeah. That was going to be my question where it's like, you know, did you, did you go into when you started pitching, uh, pitching books, you know, obviously you started with, uh, the Laura Jane Grace book. Um, did you feel like you had a little bit of, uh, uh you know, uh, just this advanced knowledge of, of like how things are going to probably be because you had all of this time at these publishing houses, like you kind of knew what could have been bullshit if someone was feeding it to you or, yeah. or just like, yeah, you, you just had like and, a step above on a lot of people. And not only that, but I knew how to not be a pain in the ass author. And I know how to do it now. Like, you know, like every fucking author would, would be like, Oh, Hey, uh, you know, sometimes John Stewart has authors on the daily show or like the really crazy one would, would be like, Oh, you know, like, did we send it to like Oprah's book club? And it's just like, oh, no, no, no. Like, we didn't think to send it to the most influential bookseller in the fucking world. No, like we, for, you know, like, um, so I knew all of that. I knew, I knew to like which shots to choose and not to, not to sound like a naive person, you know? Um, yeah, it helped big time. Yeah, totally. Um, with, uh, with Laura's book, like how, how long did that process take to find a publisher? And like, was the book um, already written? Like, I, I don't know that you and I ever really talked about that. Um, well, as far as finding the publisher, that sort of like predates me. She had sold it to this one publisher. And at, at some point, like, I think she realized it was a bad fit. Like, mm -hmm. I think they wanted it to be like this really pretty, um, you know, coming of age story, which it wasn't. And I think she like moved it over to another publisher who like got her whole thing a little bit better. But um, after that, um, that's how I got involved. And it started with, you know, like I, I had given her a column at Noisy because I liked the way she writes and stuff. And so I was just working with her on her writing there. And then when she had to write, um, so I guess she, she hadn't told me, but she had this book deal, you know, and she just sent me a text one day and it just said, do you want to help me finish my book? And I was like, yeah. And I didn't know what she meant by that. I didn't know what, right. a, like a novel of fucking sci-fi, I don't know what she, <laughs> you know, like, and I didn't know what she meant by finish. Like, are you just starting? Are you uh, like, did you write it? You need somebody to look. I had no idea. Turned out she had not written any of it. Like it was, she had written like fragments or like a few things here and there. She had those journals, which was like the biggest asset, but she really like was at, in a lot of ways at square one. And I, it's like I was the just, outline, the outline was there. Of nope, like what could, oh, no, not, not no. even that. Yeah. That was like what I helped her do was like craft the outline of it. I feel like that was probably the most essential role that I played was like helping her with that. Uh, I actually, I remember like we went out to break brunch or something one day in Brooklyn and I had like my notebook ready to like take notes. And I remember having it there with my pen, just like ready to scribble whatever she's got. And I was like, okay, so like, what do you see as the story? And she's like, I don't know. 
And I was like, okay, well, but like, well, who do you see as like the main characters in it? And she's like, I don't know. And I was like, well, what books do you think it could be like? And she's just like, yeah, I don't know. And I just like closed the notebook and I was like, all right, well, <laughs> we're, we're going to start from the beginning. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and not to say that she hadn't thought about it. I'm sure she had, but like, it's probably overwhelming to be like, okay, yeah. How do I get it into a book? I don't know. And I think that's what I did. I was like the filter for her, totally. you know? Yeah. 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 Um, do you feel like there was a lot of lessons that you learned with that book that you, um, took to your new book sellout that's coming out? Um, yeah, a ton. Like I wouldn't even know where to start. You know, I think actually the biggest lesson that I had learned from that, cause that was like my first time doing like a book length work is that if you look at it, something like a book that, you know, obviously can't possibly be written faster than it can. Like it's going to take months to write a book. There's just no way around it. You're not just going to sit down and start with the first word and then end in the first word. And that's the day, you know, it takes months. And so like something like that, that's a long project. You have to, you, you will go crazy if you try to be like, think of the whole thing all at once, all the time. It's impossible. You have to wake up every day and chip away at it. And you have to trust that you have the knowledge and the, to, to make it happen. You know, like you have to just wake up every day and make the little decisions that need to be made. And then at the end of the year, they've all added up to this thing that hopefully you're proud of, but you cannot possibly look at the whole thing at once. And that's like, I think in a weird way, a good life lesson, like you just have to fix the problems in front of you. You cannot worry about like, I remember during the pandemic at the height of my like anxiety about it. I remember being on the phone with my mom and just being like, oh, you don't understand. Like, this is fucking pandemic. And the, and the idiot in the White House is just making it worse because he said this today. And we're never going to get a universal healthcare system because the powers and be like, don't want us to have that because like they, they profit off of people's illness and blah, 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 blah. I was going like 100 miles an hour. And she listened to me for like 15 minutes. And then she was just like, yeah. And what are you going to do about it? And I was like, what? She's like, what are you going to do about it? And I was like, I don't know. She's like, nothing. You can only like work on the problems in front of you. And I was like, yeah, you're right. Like, and, and I don't get me wrong. I do think that like healthcare needs to be reformed. Like we need to have better, you know, standards for politicians, but like you do have to, if you want those things, you have to make the small maneuvers. You have to, I don't know what it is even in that, but like vote for the candidates who support, you know, like just just doing the micro things every day, but to just be like, I want the healthcare system changed. You're going to bang your head on the wall if you if it doesn't get changed every single day. Yeah. So it's the same thing. It's just like, I learned a lot about life from the process of working on a book. Just like work on the little things ahead of you. They will add up to a bigger life, you know? Right. And it's right. like, that's the thing. Just live your life every day. Who is it that said like, uh, you know, like, life is a collection of the days that we live or whatever, how you live your life, how you live your day is how you live your life. Somebody said that. Um, and so, yeah, that's so true. You can't reshape your life in a day. You can reshape the day right? and you can reshape the next day. And then after 365 of those, you will have shaped a year and then eventually you will have shaped your life. So yeah, it taught me to like work on a micro level for sure. Sure. That makes that. Yeah. That makes total sense. You know, you, you and I, I think I've been kind of present in your life, I mean, I've been present in your life for a while now. We've been forever, really. For, in a way, for you've a always been there. It's like the shining. 
and it's kind of also fun to be on the other end where you know you you've you've covered things of of mine all these times and now this is the how the payback tables have, how yeah. the tables have turned <laughs> um but uh what you know kind of a generic question but when did you actually start like say i'm gonna write this book um this is gonna be my focus and you know I got to start chipping away at how to, how to accomplish this. Like what year did that start? For um, what do you like the like very long, inception? Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Like the very inception, like when did you have this idea and when did you start realizing that you wanted to make it happen? Um, I had the like idea a couple years ago, I guess. And then I was like, maybe that could be a book. And then, um, slowly worked away, worked chipped away at like a proposal, and then got it sold. I know that's sort of like the rush way to do it, but I'm the rush way to explain it. Um, but yeah, but then as far as like working on it, I would say like in earnest, that started really when I moved here, as okay. I mentioned on 420, um, like a, a little <laughs> bit before that, because um, I did some early interviews in March of 2019 in New York. Um, and then, yeah, so it really took like two years. That was two years, 2019, 2020. And, you know, there's like the supplemental book uh, that, um, you know, called Major Label Debut that you has all the like a lot of portraits that you took of the people that you've interviewed. So it seems as though from that, that you were lucky enough to at least do a lot of the the interviews in person for at least quite a while. Right. Like if, if there was like a ratio, how many do you think you got to do in person versus um... once the shutdown happened? Good question. I feel lucky in that I did get a lot done in that first year. And then during the plague year, it got like really <laughs> a lot, a lot trickier <laughs> because, you know, not only are you not doing them in person, but at the beginning of it, when before we hyper normalized everything, people were just like not really. You know, I'd get answers like, oh, you know, like so-and-so, like the artist, it was always the artist, you know, like so-and-so is like not really in the headspace right now. And I'm like, oh, wonderful, because I'm definitely in the headspace. Like, I don't have to worry about the pandemic at all, you know, like, but for me, like it was my job. I had to do it. And so, yeah, it got like a little bit more challenging, but I did, I did, you're right, do a lot in, I, I can't really give a percentage, but I would say I probably cracked the 50% mark on ones that I needed to do in person. Something that I found interesting with, with reading chapters of the book is that, uh, and I wanted to ask you is, you know, you say like, okay, I'm going to, I want to interview Thursday. Right. And you're like, okay, so who am I going to interview on Thursday? You're like, well, clearly the band members, I need to talk to Tony Brummel from victory. I need to talk to uh, Ben Lazar. Um, mm -hmm. And you know, like these are the people, but then once you start those conversations, does it then uh, turn into like, okay, well, I guess I need to get a quote from this person. And then it, like, it starts to, so, you know, it's like a, a balloon, a balloon <laughs> onion where it's like, oh, you keep peeling back the layers where you're like, well, I guess I need to talk to this person. And did that become a little bit overwhelming when you realize how many different people actually are part of this puzzle? Yeah. I mean, it's a, that's a great question. And really it's kind of like infinite if you let it be. And I guess the way it worked for me was like, yeah, I had like a spreadsheet of like, okay, here's every chapter. Here's all the people I think that I need to interview, obviously the band members, but then they're A&R people. And, you know, but then that expanded so much as I was researching it. 
And sometimes it was a matter of uh, utility. Like I'd be like, yeah, like Full Collapse was really well received among other bands. And I'm like, hmm, who who would be a good person to illustrate that? And I'd be like, oh, Adam from Murder by Death, because they were on the same label. They were friends at that time. Let me call Adam. So I would like have to interview Adam. But then sometimes you're on the phone with Adam and he'd be like, Hey, did you talk to this person from this band? Because I bet they would have good perspective. And so, like, all of a sudden, then you're on this like hunt to find so and so from this other band. And then, like, you know, if you like so many people did that. And oftentimes, too, I at the end of an interview would be like, Okay, great. Thanks for talking. Like, let me ask you, is there anybody else you think I should talk to for this? And so, like, yeah, it expanded so much. And sometimes I was getting in over my head where, like, I remember towards the end, I, I, this was such a great sign that I just needed to cut it off. I remember writing the Green Day chapter and, you know, Kamala Parks, she was like a big Berkeley scene, like influence, uh, like influential person in the, in the early Berkeley scene. And I remember emailing her and just being like, Hey, I'm writing this book and there's a chapter in Green Day. And I think you'd have good perspective. And I remember her writing back very politely, just being like, okay, great. But like, what exactly do you want to know from me? And I just remember writing back like, mm, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and she was just like, okay, well, like maybe if you think of something specific, why don't you give me a call? And I'd be like, all right. <laughs> and I was yeah. like, you know what? I think this is a sign that I'm like, I have to like, put parameters on this thing. <laughs> totally. Yeah. I mean, I was putting myself in your shoes, someone who, you know, like feels you need to get the most out of something or like, you know, well, I can't leave this stone unturned because what if they have this little piece of knowledge, it's going to make or break yeah. this chapter or, or whatever. So yeah, but again, putting myself in your shoes, I was like, oh my God, that had to have been a little overwhelming where you exactly start peeling back the layers. Yeah. And like, oh my I, God, there's I, I so many to... people. I had to let go of the idea fairly early on that this is like a completionist work. Like it can't possibly be, you know, it just, um, even if, cause I know people are going to read the book and it's already happened where like somebody was just like, Hey, how come this wasn't in it? Like, how come you didn't mention this person or whatever? And I know that there's going to be so much of that. And, you know, in case anybody does read my book and is, has that question. The answer is because there's only so many pages, you know, like I can't possibly fit the entire thing in there. Um, but I did, I think a fucking pretty thorough job. Um, but, also, uh, well, also, but I mean, there's also you, people who like, wouldn't talk to me. That's what I was about to say. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's like, it's like, you and I, you know, you and I have been friends throughout this process. So like, I remember, you know, being in your backyard and you telling me like, or going to the park with you and being like, being like, oh yeah. You know, like I, I thought I was going to get a, get an interview with this person and kind of yeah. strung along. And now I have to just sort of like base the story off other people that were also involved and present in this person's yeah, career. Yeah, I mean, like, it's it's funny because, you know, I'll name names. Like, somebody like Rise Against, I think they were so honored that somebody took them seriously enough to, like, document them in a book that they were so accessible. And, like, not just them, like, everybody was just, like, so happy to, like, talk about their friends and Rise Against this, like, underdog band who did well, you know? But then you would go into a band, like, at the drive-in, who I love, and everybody that has worked on them seems to be out of their fucking mind <laughs> and like has all these hangups about like, oh, did you talk to this? You know, like and like it was just harder in some cases than others. It's not like for the record, I talk to people and at the drive in. I think that is one of my favorite things I've ever written. But sometimes people are more guarded 
than others. Yeah. I'll say that. Right. Um, so yeah, right, I just, just, just right out the gate, knowing that Ross Robinson is involved in that, who, uh, you know, I, I know his personality pretty well now. And then also my manager, the manager, of my band blaze James, like I, I know he could be a bit of a stickler too. So like, yeah, it's like right up, like not even band members involved. You're dealing with two very intense personalities right there. But you know what? That like made me so much more hungry. Like Rise Against, again, that was like pie. Like I could just call anybody and they'd talk to me for as long as I wanted. With At The Drive-In, it was almost like a challenge where like people were being kind of weird sometimes. And I, but I was just like, well, I'm going to research the shit out of this. Like, I'm not going to leave any stone unturned. So in a way, like those chapters sharpened my sword a little bit. Cause I was like, Oh, you're going to make me work for this. Well, I'm going to do the work. Like, I don't know if you thought you could just kind of brush me off, but I'm going to like work really hard to get this story now. Yeah, no, that's, that's awesome. And I'm glad that you found enjoyment in that and didn't feel defeated by it. You know, it was, it's, it's like, you know, it was challenging. Like I liked it. I think like, I think that the book probably would be boring if I got everything I wanted, like you don't get everything you want in life. Um, so I don't, you don't get everything you want in writing a book. Like the trick is like, how can you compensate for that? Cause you can either just act defeated and be like, no, I didn't get them. They said no. Or you can be like, Hey, I wonder where this guy's dad is. Like maybe I could call his office and talk to his dad. You know what I mean? Like, uh, so I was, I was doing, I, I did not that he, Jim didn't talk to me, but I did, I did talk to Jim Adkins, dad on the phone. Who's like a, a veterinarian. Um, man, you're just like bringing all these like weird memories back. Cause I remember I had the most, this is probably not interesting, but I had the most embarrassing call where I called Jim Adkins's office he's a veterinarian yeah and i was like hi like my name i talked to the like a uh, secretary and i was like yeah my name is anazi i'm trying to contact dr ad doctor i just fucked up Dod- doctor i'm doing it now dr adkins so much that i was just like may i start over please <laughs> my, like i got tongue-tied it was so weird like i talked to all these I talked to like Blake Schwarzenbach and fucking all these famous people. And then I was like, yes, I'm nervous talking to Jim Adkins's dad's secretary. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That's incredible. Um, So, uh, you know, I think a question you probably might get asked a bunch because it's, uh, you know, for the people that were present for this, it was such a big topic at the time. Um, But there was so much of it happening that, uh, what was it hard deciding which bands for which years to t- like the beginning makes sense. Dookie, obviously dear you, obviously. But then once you get into the early two thousands, you might have someone being like, why didn't you do AFI? Yeah, for why sure. Didn't Actually, you do thrice. Why didn't you do, you know, <laughs> I just did an interview with Andrew from Brooklyn vegan. And <clears throat> he asked me like if how close AFI was to making the cut specifically. Um, yeah. Like I tried to, like you said, I kind of try to do it as a history where I would tackle like one band or so every year, like the album every year. So like I was kind of limited by that. And in some cases, yeah, you had like 2003 or something like that, where like three major label records came out. Like maybe it was like Thursday AFI and saves a day. And you're like, well, 
got to make some Sophie's choices here. Like, which ones do I think are telling the narrative story that I want to tell? And then also, too, you know, like, I think, admittedly, my book is a little bit dude-centric. Um, so, but I didn't want it to exclusively be that. So I was just like, well, okay, like, how can I make this book more diverse and incorporate more female stories in it too? And I really, what they weren't like token because I really wanted to have the Donnas in there because the book starts with the, um, the boom of lookout records and the Donnas were kind of like at present for the collapse of it. So, um, you know, I knew I wanted them in there. And so like, uh, the book is all sort of linked. And I think every chapter is like um, connected to the others. Weirdly, I think the only chapter that's sort of like a standalone chapter is at the drive-in because mm -hmm. they were almost like this, their own weird unit. Like they weren't on Capitol where Jimmy world was and other band, like they were on grand Royal. This like, they were just like one of a kind, truly one of a kind. And they're right in the middle of the book. And uh, I really so love that, that chapter, even though it doesn't really like fit with anything else, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's man. It, it, when you first told me the idea of the book a long time ago, I was like, I was like, man, I, I wonder if I, I had wondered if you were going to just do it by year. It was be like 2003, because then you know, or 2002, because like there's so many. There was like Poison the Well signing to Atlantic. There yeah, Boys It's Fire on Windup. There was uh, Blood Brothers on like V2 or whatever. Yeah. Like there's just so many wild ones. The one, like, the one that like I truly was like, mm, maybe in another lifetime. In fact, you know, like my editor and I were talking about like maybe in the paperback version we'll do an edition where there's like an expand like a, another chapter or whatever but like the one I really wanted to do was Caven. Oh yeah. Cuz Caven Antenna. Yeah. What an interesting band. What an interesting career cuz they were like um they basically were like influential several times over. Like started out as this like metalcore ish band, like kind of mapped out metalcore for a while for better or worse right and then um all of a sudden as soon as they got like you know were the kings of that they were just like mm, now we're gonna do like this spacey rock record and i think you could probably trace you know title fight and law disputes influence back to that record and then they signed to a major label and then they were like we're gonna make a radio rock single and it was for nobody you know <laughs> like i i i Maybe you know people who like that record, but I truly like have friends who love Jupiter. I have friends who love Until Your Heart Stops. I don't know fucking anybody who like is in oh, love with Antenna. Well, you're talking to one person right now. Really? I love that record. Really? But the guitar player in my band, Nick, he's his bit is, and he's honest about it, all his favorite records from these bands are all the major label. Records. He's like, give me a major label flop. It's my me favorite. Me too. Me too. I mean, don't get me wrong. Like I stranger than fiction is my favorite bad religion album, which is not a popular opinion, sure. but yeah. I love it. It's got um, hits. So I stand corrected on cave -in, but I just, I guess what I'm saying is like, it is interesting that they um, set their own terms two times over mm -hmm. and then started, started at a major label. And it seemed like we're like, okay, how can we make something that people like? And as a single, it flopped, you know, and they, it was a failure in that regard. Yeah. Um, this is no, you know, no disrespect to Caven. I love Caven, love, love, love Caven. Um, but you know, like that, that was a really interesting experiment because they fucking tried. Yeah. <laughs> and, know? Well, and it was interesting because then when they ended up doing P perfect pitch black, like you never saw them play those songs live. Yep. Like back. they just, they just like erase, like didn't yep, back happen. Back to that. 
And I remember I, seeing them on that tour. I remember seeing them play that song, Inspire. Mm-hmm. You know, what inspires you? Like that's yeah. you know? um I remember yeah. Chris Farron uh talking to me about uh I guess like the fake problems had done a tour where the sound person, maybe for against me, mm-hmm. um would would check the PA with the down, 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 <laughs> and he'd be like, I there's no riff I hate more than that. I riff. fucking hate that riff too, and I didn't even wasn't even on that tour. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, I I it's kind of a record I feel like people should come back to and and just like revisit because it is it's really really good and I remember always hearing rumors that I've never had actually formally um like uh, told her truth which is like supposedly like Dave Grohl might have been involved in helping mm. write it like there's all these rumors like that and I remember talking to someone on this podcast god I wish I could remember who it was I want to say it was maybe it was Anthony Green maybe it was Barty Strain I can't remember who it was but we were saying I wonder what the alternate reality world we could have been living in where maybe Cave-In made it and Muse didn't. <laughs> you know what I'm <laughs> yeah, saying? Because they were both kind of in the same kind of world. And I feel like Cave-In maybe even opened for Muse in Europe around that time, which would have made total sense. See, I but, feel like I have to write this chapter in some form because I want to know. Like, I want to know what how it went from those for those guys on the inside. Because like all the chapters that I wrote for this book, I thought I knew the story. Yeah. And then I was talking to the members and I was like, actually, you know what? I didn't really get this right. I'm glad I did the research. Yeah. Uh, just one of the, assume. One of the things I wanted to ask you was, do you, now that it's done and you've like, can kind of reflect and like take a step back and look at it. Do you think that there was like a common thread that you found through everyone's stories? Um, there are so many common threads. Like you heard so many stories, especially towards the end of like, um, like there were music industry threads where like, um, people would sign to a label and then before that record even came out, the label folded or, you know, something like that. The that was a common thread. Yeah. And your people are gone. And that was a common thread through the second half of it. Um, one of the most common things that I had heard, which is something, you know, I don't really, I, I like I try I tried to keep my opinion out of the book. Like I was just reporting, but one thing that I think was interesting that came that a lot of people said to me is just like, you know, the fallacy is that, you know, like the, what the traditional way of thinking in punk is the indie label is going to do right by you. And the major label is going to be the one that fucked you over. But I'm here to tell you that the indie label can fuck you over just as easily as the major. And that's not to say like, that's not to put down all indie labels, obviously. Um, but you know, like there are some where, you know, I think Laura says, did she say this in the book or maybe she said it somewhere else, but she was just like, you know, uh, I think she says it in the book where she's just like, you know, as much as we had a difficult time with sire, like we get royalty statements on time. Meanwhile, there's like indie labels. I'm still trying to get an honest fucking accounting (laughs) numbers from, you know, um, so that's one of the like fallacies that I think like drove this era of music where people were like, yeah, fuck the corporate machine, like indie, like DIY or die type of thing. But like, there's so many instances of indie labels fucking over their bands, you know, like, well, you're not safe there. Not at all. Not at all. I mean, yes, you, you uh, it, it's funny. It's like, yeah, you can look at a major label and just assume it's a monster. Um, but, uh, you look at the indie label and they're presenting themselves as your friends and that's, that's 
often way worse. And, and that's the other thing that's uh, sort of like been demystified for me as well. And like, I don't say either of these things to like, uh, you know, like get let major labels off the hook because they can be shitty too. But one of the other things too is like, I'm sure you as well, when we were growing up, um, and you would hear about major labels, you just generally think of them as this like shadowy vampire, right? Like, you know, it's just like, oh, it's just like a building to you in a way. Like you, when you close your eyes yeah, and you think of major label, I just think of this like shadowy figure or something like that. But, you know, like I had to go and talk to the real people who did it. And, you know, they were probably like our age now. And they were just guys who had jobs at record labels and they genuinely liked this kind of music and wanted to help the bands, you know, like yeah. the people on the ground, like the A&R guys, they were just like, I really like this band. I want to give you a bigger platform. And yeah, like Jawbreaker was my favorite band when I was a kid, you know, like they got it. It wasn't just like some in, in some cases it was, but it, it wasn't just like suits who are just like, hey, kid, let me let me make you a star. You know, it was like, yeah, I'm an old hardcore guy. Like, yeah, you. I worked with fucking Gorilla Biscuits. Like, now you come over to my way, you know? That's that. It's uh, that's that's a thing that's always funny to me is is uh, every most suits that I have dealt with in my life always tell you they came from punk. Yeah. Always, always mm -hmm. like, oh, you know me, I saw. You know, I went used to go to CBGBs. I saw bad brains, and then you're like, "Yeah, okay, what happened?" <laughs> <laughs> and there were stories like that too. Like, there's the famous story which made it into the book where, who is it? Michael Goldstone, like some like big wig, fucking music industry guy in '95 was courting Rancid and like famously dyed his hair blue oh. to like impress them, you know, and it didn't even work, which is funny. That was when Madonna sent them nude pictures of herself as like a bartering chip you know oh my god yo the and it's so funny be, uh with the book too because like as you're talking about like the major labels always seem like the shadowy evil figure but yo straight up no one sounds more evil and fucked up in your book than tony brummel he is <laughs> he is a straight up monster what in like crazy... his quotes but but i i agree with you but yeah. i do think that he I don't know him very well. We just talked for that interview and he, he presents said what you expect. Yeah, for sure. He, he played the part, you know, yeah. I think that's pretty authentically him, but the funny thing about him is there are like, he seems to here's okay. Like there's somebody in the book, I believe Thursday's A&R guy at Island said something to the effect of like, it's such a long quote. It's something to the effect of like, I fucking hated Tony victory. He was such a toxic piece of shit. He would talk all this like indie label flag stuff. And then he'd fuck bands over in these slavery deals. I respected him. He's a smart guy and he, and he, and he works hard, but what a toxic piece of shit. I don't know Tony victory very well, but I feel like I know him well enough to know that he's going to read that quote. And be like, wow, this guy said I was really smart and worked hard. <laughs> like that's gonna be the <laughs> only good. thing that he gleans from the whole yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You yeah. know, like he's just like a very um a very like uh he wants he wants I don't know if he still does, but he wanted to be like taken as seriously yeah, as yeah, the yeah. president of like MCA records, you know. Um, so for somebody to like legitimize him, I think he's gonna like like because I'm reading the book and I'm like 
woof, man, people said some shit about Tony Victory, but I honestly think he's going to read it and be like, I came off pretty strong. (laughs) (laughs) Like, so I don't know. I, I, I don't know. Um, well, you know, I, I, uh, I appreciate the book so much and, um, you know, it was, it was fun reading the Thursday chapter too, because, uh, I was such a, I've been such a present person in their, in their lives since the full collapse days. So like, I was kind of present for a lot of these things happening and I would hear them kind of firsthand as, as they were happening and then continuing to be friends with these guys and like, you know, hear maybe deeper stories about the stuff and then to read the chapter and be like, yeah, you got it. Like, yeah, there was, there was, there was nothing in there that I was like, that I was like, ah, you know, like he left this thing out. Like I, as I was reading it, I was like, yeah, I've heard, you know, I've heard the, uh, the lemon story of told from every member of the band, you know, like the dipping the the thing in the wrong. Oh yeah. Thinking, yeah, yeah. thinking it was, uh, thinking it was whatever. Yeah. Like, all that of means those... a lot. Yeah. Cause so, like, like congratulations. I said, thanks. Staten Island being close to New Jersey. Like I said, that was the chapter I felt most personally connected to. Cause I also saw it. Like I was, my house was really only like 15 minutes from Jeff's basement. I saw shows there all the time. You know, I saw like you and I there and stuff. And, um, and I watched the ascent. Like I remember watching Jeff get better on the microphone. I remember totally. other people start to emulate him, you know, not to like call out anybody, but I remember going to see that band this day forward. Yeah. And I was like, this, this guy is just Jack and Jeff's fucking style. <laughs> you know, yeah. like, and I like that band. That's no disrespect, yeah. but like Jeff what I ended mean, up singing on their, one of their EPs. He's influential yeah. as a, as a front person just the way yeah. he moves in his style and everything and so like that chapter meant so much to me and every time i could sneak in these little references for my friends back home i'm like fuck yeah i got like vintage vinyl in there fuck yeah dude <laughs> like, yeah, yeah repping yeah. 10312 staten island you know um i felt so good you know just to like just to like it, it, it sounds so cheesy but i really feel like i've been working on this book my entire life because dookie blew my mind as a kid. And I feel like I've been legitimately working on this book in my head for since I was 11 years old, you know, yeah. uh, and just like watching that happen with Jeff and then also being so personally invested in against me when they were starting to, you know, like so much of myself went into this book, although you might not be able to see it. It mean, I yeah. can, I can tell, you know, I forget if I told you this story, but I, th- I think I've, I had to have told you the story, but like, I was working at the record store and against me was like my fucking favorite band in the entire world at that point, you know? And, uh, and one of the reps at, uh, at one of the majors, cause they would come in all the time. Cause if the store is in Burbank, so all these people, all the people from the labels would come in all the time and try to like interface with us. Cause they want their product to be in the store or whatever. And one of the guys came in and was like, yo, I think that band you like just signed with our label. And I was like, what band? And he's like against me. And I was like, it's impossible. <laughs> and he was like, he's like, no, they, they just signed. I was like, there's no fucking way they, they just literally signed. just made a documentary. That yeah. I was would... like, this documentary literally just came out about how they were never going to sign to a yeah. major label. And he was like, I don't know, man, they did. I'm like basically calling this guy a fucking liar to his face. And meanwhile, like that's his day job. And then it was like two weeks later, he came in and was just like, what I tell you, what I tell you. And I was just like, I just couldn't believe it. So I remember that, that one in particular having such a big impact. So um, you know, all of having all these memories of, you know, these bands and when these things were happening, it, it's a, it's a fun read. So Thanks, um, there's a lot of us out here who, uh, who were very present for this stuff. And there's uh, probably a lot of younger people that didn't even realize the impact of a lot of this stuff that Fuck, I hope know, so. I hope they check it out. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's interesting. It's like, we're at a point where 
I think for a lot of younger people, record labels don't matter anymore. Yeah. You know, it doesn't matter to people. Like for most kids, I think record labels are really just like a different web store they have to order the record from. <laughs> um, but, you know, these bands are all so influential and monumental that like, you know, I, I think there's a lot of learning lessons in there too that I hope people yeah. take. So, Thanks, um, yeah, I want to end the show with uh, what I ask everybody, which is uh, when was the first time, you know, for writing, I guess, uh, that you felt like you were doing the thing that you had been working so hard towards? Um, man, I, I don't know that I've had that feeling yet. <laughs> you know, like, I don't know that I'll ever have that feeling. I remember recently a friend of mine was like, what, would, what do you want to do before you die? Like, what do you hope you do before you die? And I was like, hmm, I would like to fall in love again. I would like to see the Northern Lights. And I'd love to publish a book. And she was just like, you have two. Like, what are you fucking talking about? And I was like, no, but you know what I mean? Like a real book. And I was just so serious about it. But I, I And it makes sense in my head, but I just don't... I feel like everything that I've made so far has just been like luck or something like that like i'm like no i want to write like a real book and i don't know what to, i don't know even what i mean by that like i'll never feel like i wrote a real book like a personal memoir or like i don't a, know like, like a fiction story just some something that means something uh not to say that like it doesn't like sometimes uh, uh, laura's book you know like kids will show me that they got fucking tattoos of it it means something but in a way, like, I don't feel like I'll ever hit that place. I'm always going to feel like I'm chasing it. And in a way, like, that's so good because I don't want to ever get content and rest on my hands. Like, I always want to be going. I, I just never am going to feel like a real writer because I don't think I have any sense of what that means. <laughs> you know, sure. like, I just never going to be enough. Like, I'm never, um, I I'll, I'll leave you with this, I, I guess. Like, one of the things that, like, I, I, after Laura's book came out, I got so uh, daunted by the idea of like, how do I top this? And maybe you've had this too, where you're just like, how can I go bigger? And, and um, that was really daunting and limiting in a way. And I feel like I have a better understanding of it now um, because I feel like sellout is maybe going to is bigger in a sense, but still like, I don't care. Like I, the thing that really helped me was I started thinking of my work as just sitting on a bookshelf. And it doesn't matter if one thing is better, bigger, or more well-received than, than the others. What matters is that I fill the shelf. So like, that's just how I see it. I'm just like, I'm just going to keep adding to this, to this until I fucking die, <laughs> you know? Um, so yeah. Yeah. It makes sense to me. I mean, or you could even just point to uh, the first time that uh, you get you got in your local newspaper and your mom got psyched. That's kind of cool. Yeah, yeah like that yeah, could be an she's... easy one. Be... <laughs> okay, well then that that I take <laughs> yeah, it back. But, yeah, no, I mean I, what you said makes makes total sense. Whenever someone gives me an answer saying like I don't know if I've ever felt it, me as the interviewer, I'm always I've, I'm thinking back of the conversation we just had, and for me, I feel like a, a tendency to be like, let me let me tell you one that you had because you just told it to me and it sounded pretty <laughs> exciting. Um, okay, fine. Then that that one when don't when take my that mom, for granted, Dan Ozzy. <laughs> when my mom put it in a laminated book that I wrote a cover story about some guy who was flashing people. That was a real story <laughs> that I remember covering. <laughs> That's awesome. All right, I appreciate you, Dan. Thank yeah. you for for hanging out with me. Thank you. 
and that's our show. How good was that? That's one of my favorite episodes. I, I love Dan. He did uh, he did a wonderful job with that book, and um, he's just a swell, swell person. Uh, if reminder, if you want more Dan, there's a bonus episode over on the Patreon. Just go to Patreon.com/slash the first ever Patreon. And uh, if you haven't subscribed to the show on Spotify or Apple, I would really appreciate that. Rating and reviewing also helps so, so much if you do that over on Apple. Thank you for your time, and I will, uh, I'll see you soon. Have a good rest of your week.